0: I will be reading Matthew 6, 1 to 18. Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honored by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts, as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show men they are fasting. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to men that you are fasting, but only to your father who is unseen and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. This is God's word.
1: Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your father in heaven. What does it look like to honor Jesus as our king through what he calls our righteous deeds or acts of righteousness? Things like giving to the needy or praying or fasting instead of using those righteous activities to draw attention to ourselves, as was so brilliantly displayed in that short video. This is the focus uh, of our passage this morning, Matthew 6, 1 through 18. And so please pray with me and uh, let's ask God to reveal himself and search our hearts and change our hearts as we look at this passage. Heavenly Father, Lord, it is a, a sad commentary on humanity in general and Christianity in particular when something so clearly designed to honor you is so frequently hijacked to honor ourselves. Lord, as we look at this passage this morning, at your word, keep us from thinking about all the people we know who need to hear this and open our hearts to hear it ourselves. Lord, speak to the very depths of our hearts. Show us our sin and take us once again to the cleansing and life-changing foot of your cross. Lord, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're just joining us this morning, we are in the Gospel of Matthew, which is the first book of the New Testament. And a few chapters into that book, we find what's called the Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5 through 7. In this sermon, Jesus is laying out his vision for what life in his kingdom looks like. Life as part of God's family, life under the reign and rule of Jesus as king. It is a life of brokenness as we've seen so far. A brokenness that Jesus calls poverty of spirit back in Matthew 5.3. Brokenness that readily acknowledges our sin and our need for a savior and king. Yet it's also a life of righteousness, as Jesus has been demonstrating through the second half of chapter 5. So a life of following our king and obeying his word, not just on the surface where people can see it, like the religious leaders of the day were so good at doing. But righteous living that comes from the heart, that, that's, that goes below the surface. More specifically, that comes from a heart that has been changed by the gospel of Jesus. And so as we come to chapter 6 this morning, Jesus is continuing to address this theme of righteousness, of righteous living, uh, righteous living in his kingdom. And in verses 1 through 18, he talks about three specific examples of those kinds of righteous or God-honoring activities, giving, praying, and fasting. And verse 1 really lays out the main point of the whole section. Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So what is it that Jesus is particularly concerned about in these verses? Well, a few things he's not specifically concerned about. Note here that the problem is not the acts of righteousness themselves. Uh, The NIV translation puts quotes around the words acts of righteousness, which might give the impression that those activities weren't actually very righteous Don't let that distract you. The specific examples of righteous deeds that Jesus gives here are all very good things. In fact, things that God's people are at times commanded to do. And Jesus assumes that his followers will be doing them. Note that he says, when you give to the needy, when you pray or fast, not if. Jesus assumes that his followers will be participating in these things. Giving to those in need, or what, some, what is sometimes called giving alms, uh, was an important part of both ancient, uh, ancient Israel and the early church's life and community. For instance, Deuteronomy 15 says, If there's a poor man among your brothers in any of the towns of the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward your poor brother. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend him whatever he needs. There will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed toward your brothers and toward the poor and needy in your land. That was part of of the virtue of God's people, to be generous in that way. Similarly, we see the early church giving freely and generously to those who were in need among the community. Acts 2.45 They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And so for those who who fell into need, God's people are to be generous. That's something we are to continue doing today. And of course, prayer. You know, prayer is an indispensable part of the life, uh, of our life and faith. Prayer is an acknowledgement that God is God and that we are not. That this is his world, we are His creation, His people, this is His church, and that all that we have comes from His hand and all we need can only be supplied by Him. It's our acknowledgement of dependence and faith put into action. It means, it's the means that God's given us for communing with a God whom we cannot see, yet we can still talk to and bring our requests before Him, our praise, acknowledging his worthiness, uh, confessing our sin, thanking him for who he is and all that he's done. Bringing our requests to him as a child brings them to their father. Scripture tells us to pray without ceasing. It's a good thing, something we're to do constantly. And not to be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving to present your request to God. And the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So giving to the needy is a good and godly thing to do. Prayer is a good and godly thing to do. Third example, fasting is likewise a good and godly thing to do. Uh, It's probably an example we are less familiar with in our tradition, though we shouldn't be. Uh, Like prayer, fasting is an expression of our dependence on God. And our need for God. It's the discipline of saying no to certain physical appetites for a time. So that we can direct those desires and longings to God. Uh, As Doug O'Donnell explains. In fasting we essentially say. I do not live for my appetites. My physical appetites. My sexual appetites. My material appetites. I live for God and for his blessing. Ancient Israel's law only commanded them to do this once a year on the Day of Atonement. But throughout the Scriptures, you see God's people fasting on all sorts of occasions as that, again, that expression of their dependence and desire for God and for His kingdom. We see it uh, in their confession of sin in places like Nehemiah 9. We see it as they bring their burdens or requests before the Lord or simply Just expressing one's dependence on God. Think of Jesus in the wilderness. He's not repenting of any sin there. He just wants to express his dependence on the Father. And it was also a common part of the early church's worship. So the problem that Jesus is addressing here is not about the righteous activities themselves. Neither is the problem necessarily doing these righteous deeds before men... Or in the presence of others. Uh, You remember what Jesus said just a few verses earlier. Let your light shine before men. That they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. So one of the reasons that Jesus' followers are to live the way that they are to live. Is to show the world what God is like. When the church gathers and worships or scatters to love our neighbors and bear witness to Christ, the world sees Jesus and will respond either in praise to him or persecution toward us. So the problem in the passage, it's not the acts themselves or even necessarily being seen by others, but doing these acts of righteousness before men in order to be seen by them. That last phrase of verse 1, in order to be seen by them. The problem here is taking what is designed to be an act of worship to God and using it to gain approval from men, from other people. The righteous acts that God rewards are those that are offered to him in faith and for the purpose of his kingdom. The temptation that we all face is to pretend like we're serving God while we're really just trying to look good for others. We turn our righteous activities into a show. And Jesus is not impressed with our show. Now, This is nothing less than hypocrisy, according to Jesus. And there's no place for it in his kingdom. Notice the consistent pattern of how Jesus addresses each activity he's talking about giving in verses two through four, and then prayer in verses five through 15, and fasting in verses 16 through 18. He begins his comments each time by telling his followers what not to do. Verse uh, chapter six, verse two. "So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do chapter 6, verse 5. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites. And 6.16, when you fast, do not look somber or disfigure your face as the hypocrites do. Now, you'll also notice that the middle section on prayer is a lot more developed here than the other two sections. And for that reason, we're going to spend more time on it next week. Uh, Tom Morris is going to preach through the the Lord's Prayer itself next Sunday. So we're going to look at the big picture this morning. But Jesus' concern throughout this section is that his followers not be like the Pharisees and the religious leaders whom he describes again and again as hypocrites. So what's a hypocrite? What does that look like? Well, very simply, it's somebody who says one thing and does something different. You know, we're all very familiar with that idea. Here in this passage, it's someone who pretends to be serving God while trying to look good for others. The goal is repeated several times throughout the passage. Verse 1, to be seen by men. Verse 2, to be honored by men. Verse 5, to be seen by men. Verse 16, to show men. They wait to serve God until they're in in a public area, like the street corner of the synagogue, with a sufficient audience, and then they put on their show. Look at how righteous and religious I am so that they can manipulate the approval of others. A hypocrite is essentially an actor, if you think about it in those terms, which is actually the background of the word in classical Greek. Those who wore masks and acted out a play on the stage, we're called hypocrites. That's where the word comes from. And it's a fitting image, an actor. And Jesus gives us a hilarious portrait of it here. And I think the video that we watched a few minutes ago captures the spirit of what Jesus is doing uh, in this passage. He's poking fun at the ridiculousness of religious hypocrisy. Some have suggested that that the trumpets being sounded in verse 2 were maybe a summoning of people to go give alms at the temple there's no actual historical evidence for that i think it's an intentionally ridiculous picture uh it's like hiring a mariachi band to follow you around singing about your generosity while you go giving away food and money to the poor downtown i mean or 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 else making the needy recipient pose with you with one of those huge checks while somebody takes a picture so that you know through the press release everyone can know how generous you are It's goofy. As one author summarizes, this is not a gift in the sight of God. It's a purchase. The man is not helping the poor half as much as he is using the poor to help him. So he looks good. Similarly, picture the ridiculousness of of joining several friends for lunch. And one of them shows up in his pajamas He hasn't shaved or showered for days because he's so weak because he hasn't eaten for days. He's fasting for God, and every time the waiter comes by or someone takes a bite, he just groans. He 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 distorts his face of how miserable he is. You know, it's this goofy picture, but it's the kind of things we'll do to get attention. Uh, Don Carson writes, you know, what was once a sign of humiliation. Fasting, utter brokenness and need before God becomes a sign of self-righteous self-display. Look at how holy I am. Oh, I'm so hungry. Or the awkwardness of watching somebody pray high and lofty prayers in public. Or like the Gentiles, you know, heaping up many words and going, on and 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 on in a prayer, because they think that maybe God will hear and answer, or at least you will think they're really spiritual and righteous. So why do the hypocrites put on such a show? Because they seek a reward. They seek a reward, but not from God. Their eyes are set on what looks like a more tangible and attainable prize, the praise of man. They have invested their identity, their significance, their value in what others think and say about them. And so that's who they serve. It's all about image and approval. And that's something I think we all know a little bit about too, don't we? Image management is not just for politicians and corporations. It's what all of us are tempted to do. Every day we pick out the clothes we're going to wear or put on our our makeup and hair or, or what photos we choose to put on Facebook and which ones we keep buried that no one will ever see. How we act differently when others are watching than we would if no one were around. We're insecure about who we really are and so we seek to manipulate others to get their approval by showing them someone we're not. The problem is that when, when what people see doesn't line up with who we really are, that's when we become like the Pharisees. We become hypocrites ourselves. And eventually, people will see through the mask. They'll see through the mask, which terrifies us. It's an uncomfortable fact that one of Jesus' most frequent criticisms of the Pharisees is one of the world's most frequent criticisms of the church. David Kinnaman and Gabe Lyons, in their research on what young outsiders think of the church today, note that 85% of young outsiders have concluded from their exposure to Christians and churches that present-day Christianity is, quote, hypocritical. And 47% of young people within the church agree. Now, if you're visiting with us this morning and this is your first exposure to a church, I'm I'm pretty guessing that that's one of the assumptions and and notions you come in with you, that that the church is basically hypocritical. And if you grew up here, you might be thinking the same thing from your years of, of being here. The reason for that is that it's often true, isn't it? We confess Jesus as our Savior, but we don't always love people the way Jesus loves us. And so that looks hypocritical. We say that the Bible teaches that certain activities are wrong, but then we secretly participate in those when no one else is looking until we get caught. We're so concerned about what others think of us that, that every we find a way to take every good activity and somehow put ourselves at center stage. And again, eventually people see through that. Whose kingdom? It's a question all of us need to ask. Whose kingdom are we really serving through our worship? Whose praise are we seeking when we play that instrument or sing that song? or pray that prayer, or preach that sermon. And if you don't think that every time I step into this pulpit, there's a massive temptation to just want to please you and find my identity in what you think of me and my sermon, then you don't think I'm human. It's huge. And the problem with hypocrisy is that not only can other people see through it eventually, but that God can see through it immediately, and he's not impressed by the show. That means that the reward for our righteous acts that we are doing for the sight of one another, the reward for those is as shallow and short-lived as the praise we receive from people in that moment. Think about that. The reward we get from doing our righteous acts in order to be seen by others is as shallow and short-lived as the praise we receive right there and then on the spot from people. Jesus says over and over again in this passage, there's no reward left in heaven for those who put on the show for others. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. They have received their reward in full. They have received their reward in full. It's like a full-time actress whose only compensation is the applause at the end of the night feels great for a few minutes. And then you go home to an empty cupboard and an empty table. It's as shallow and short-lived as the praise you get in that moment. It doesn't last and it doesn't satisfy and it doesn't come from God. But the righteous acts that God rewards are those that are offered to him in faith and for the sake of his kingdom. Immediately following each criticism that he levels, Jesus then describes what our righteous acts should look like. And the emphasis in each example is on the secrecy with which we do them. So let's look at verse 3 in terms of giving. Jesus says, But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. So instead of uh, announcing your gift with trumpets, your care for the poor or for those who are in need should be so subtle and so consistent that you don't even realize or remember you're doing it. It's just part of who you are and it's not a big deal and I I didn't even remember doing it. it. It's just, it's in secret. Now, Most of us are not going to be so ostentatious as to hire a trumpet player to advertise our generosity. But we do have more subtle ways of of tooting our own horn, if you will, pun intended on that. We brag about it. We boast about it. We blog about it, maybe. We find ways to work it into conversations, especially if we think we can stand to gain something from the approval of that person we're talking to. You know, what sacrifice we made and so on. But when we do it in secret and no one else knows, the only one we can possibly please or seek to please is God. Our gift is offered in faith for the sake of his kingdom and there can be no reward for it but from him. In terms of prayer, Jesus says in verse 6, But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father, who is unseen. Then your father who sees what's done in secret will reward you. Again, the emphasis on secrecy there. Who is our prayer to? And who is our prayer for? If our prayer is to God, then why are we so interested in making sure others can hear us doing it? And if our prayer is for God, then the priorities of his name and his kingdom will be the occupation of our hearts. Because we know that our Father knows what we need even before we ask him. Again, we'll look more at that next week with the Lord's Prayer and see that unfolded. Now, a good reminder, Kent Hughes reminds us, uh, Jesus was not condemning public prayer. He was condemning the desire to be seen Praying publicly, and there's a difference. Uh, praying together as a body, we see that throughout the scriptures, uh, psalms, and, and, and places. But praying together as a body is an important part of our communion with God and with one another. And in that case, it's very helpful to hear what others are saying so that we can pray with them. Uh, the point of the secrecy here is that the kind of prayer God desires and rewards is that which is offered to Him. In faith and for his purposes and that seeks no reward other than what comes from him. That's the difference. And third example, uh, fasting. Jesus says in verse 17. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face. So that it will not be obvious to men that you are fasting, but only to your father who is unseen. And your father who sees what's done in secret We'll reward you. Again, we ask ourselves the question, who are we seeking to please through our fast? What is it we're really longing for and desiring? Is it God or is it the approval of others? If God is the only one who knows about your fast, then he's the only one able to take pleasure in it. He's the only one who can reward it as it's offered to him in faith and for the sake of his kingdom to practice our righteousness in secret is to practice it solely for god not to make a show of it but as to offer it as an act of worship and jesus says in every example this is the kind of righteous action that god rewards now we aren't told what that reward is you know, is it the praise and approval we receive on the final day? Well done, good and faithful servant. Is it something more tangible? We're not told, and, and I think we're not told here for a reason. We do know that it's not a matter of earning a righteous status before God. As though we can make it up to Him for our sin or, or otherwise earn His forgiveness and approval. Scripture is very consistent that our justification or our are being declared righteous or in the right with God. The clearing of our name is through faith in Jesus, not what we do in our own righteous activities. In fact, everything in the Sermon on the Mount flows from a brokenness that recognizes our sin and our neediness for God. Blessed are the poor in spirit. That's the fountainhead of this whole passage. So, God rewards our righteous actions that, that are offered to him in faith and for the sake of his kingdom, though we're not told what that reward is. And frankly, that's one of the reasons I think that it's so easy to look for approval in people on earth instead of trusting our Father in heaven. We don't we can't see the reward, but but we can see Others here, And so I think that's one of the big reasons we're tempted to that. We're, we're insecure and we lack faith, to boil it down. In, in terms of our lack of faith, seeing is a big deal in this passage. Notice how many times the word see or unseen or in secret is used in these verses. We're not to practice our righteousness in order to be seen by people people whom we can see, who might give us a reward that we can see. Instead, we are to practice our righteousness in secret for a God who sees what's done in secret, but whom we ourselves cannot see and who gives us a reward we cannot see. That kind of righteous living requires what we call faith. Faith, trusting God. Now, if you're anything like me, you're not very comfortable letting what is unseen direct the course of your life. If we can see it, we can predict it, and we can maybe even control it. So we like what we can see. We're not even sure we can believe something that we can't see. I mean, we, Seeing is believing, we tell ourselves. So it's very easy in our insecurity to want to invest our hope and security and identity in what we can see and try to control the praise and approval of other people. I can see that. As opposed to trusting an unseen God who gives an unseen reward. That would require faith. But listen to what Hebrews 11.1 tells us. Now, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. And look at verse 11. Hebrews 11.6. And without faith, the kind of faith that is certain of what cannot be seen, without faith, it's impossible to please or honor God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. If I want to please God, if I want to honor Jesus as king with my acts of righteousness and and, and bring honor and glory to him, then I have to really trust that he exists, that he's there, even though I can't see him. That he can see what I'm doing for him, even though no one else can see it. And that he truly wants to reward those who seek him. I have to have faith. And maybe that last piece is the part we have the most trouble with. The, the idea that God would actually want to reward those who seek Him. Does God really want to reward us? Now, some of us are, are self-righteous and presumptuous enough to think that God owes it to us to reward our good behavior. Now, we think much of ourselves and rather little of God. We have no true sense of His holiness and therefore no sense of our sin And our neediness before him. But those who are broken, those who are poor in spirit, bankrupt spiritually, they know that God owes them nothing. Their problem is different. We look at our holiness, and then we look at our, excuse me, we look at God's holiness, then we look at our sin, And then we look at our righteous deeds that we do for him and we know that no matter how genuine we try to love him and how much we desire to do it just for him, our hearts still smuggle in a self-righteousness. We still want to be seen and approved by men. And so we see that and we think, how could God ever want to reward something that I would give him? How could I ever bring pleasure to God to honor him with such tainted obedience? Maybe it's easier justifying my approval in these people instead. We're insecure. Listen to what Sinclair Ferguson points out about this passage. He says, Notice that in Matthew 6, 1 through 18, God is called Father on ten different occasions. Throughout this section of the sermon, our Lord hints that the real trouble with the heart of the hypocrite, is that he does not know God as his heavenly father. He is insecure before God, and therefore seeks security in what his fellow men think about him. He is unreal in his activities before men, because he has no real relationship with God. And so... Underneath all of this, the final question that we have to ask this morning is this. Do you know God as your heavenly Father? Have you come to Him through faith in Jesus, His Son, and what He's done on the cross and through His resurrection to to deal with our sin, to take it away, to give us new life, and to adopt us into the family of God, that we become sons and daughters of God? And if so, do you believe that when God looks at you, he sees his beloved child? Do you believe that? Who has been united with his eternal son, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, cleansed by his blood no matter what hypocrisy you've committed in the past it has been washed away no matter what hypocrisy you commit today and tomorrow it has been dealt with once and for all through the cross you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ and when God looks at you he sees his child do you believe that do you believe that when you pray to God that God loves to hear you pray He loves to hear you talk about your day, your disappointments and frustrations, your joys, to hear your questions and complaints, and that he already knows what you need before you ask him. Do you believe that God sees when you honor him in secret, an anonymous gift to someone in need or or, or saying no to a desire here so you can focus your desire on God. Do you believe that when God sees what you do for him in secret, that he smiles, that he enjoys and finds pleasure in it the way that a father finds pleasure in his son or his daughter showing some act of love? Do you really believe that? Do you believe that God your father cannot wait to finish the adoption Process and bring you into his heavenly kingdom, his new creation and the reward that waits, and that he's so passionate about his glory and so committed to your good that he will not fail to do everything necessary in the meantime to prepare you for the weight of glory that is to be revealed. If you are in Jesus Christ, if he is your hope, if he is your savior, your king, your brother, and your friend, then this is the hope and security you have before God. Not a hope that we can see, but one we can be certain of because of Christ. One that we believe with great confidence, and that frees us to stop putting on a show for others or Not to be driven by what others think, but to offer our righteous acts to God in faith and for the sake of his kingdom. That is what the love of our Heavenly Father frees us to do. Let's pray and ask him to do that in our hearts. Lord, how often in Scripture you remind us that you are our Father. Lord, we who were once children of wrath through the blood of Christ have become children of God. What an incredible gift. Lord, may we take that seriously. May we be convicted of our desire and effort to be to find our approval and, and security in others. Lord, that is so common. It's just it's it's our default mode. And it's ugly and it and it takes away glory from you, God. Cleanse our hearts. Let us find our satisfaction and delight so abundant in you that we just don't care or think of where we're at with others insofar as whether they think we're righteous or good or holy. May we simply be committed to and pursuing and desiring you and your kingdom. May that be what we seek first, Lord. And God, we confess for all of the times that we are actors and our relationships with each other, and our relationships with our spouses or our children, or with those that we interact with in and, and our workplaces, and school. Lord, we know that you're not impressed by our show, and so we ask for your forgiveness. And we pray, Lord, that again, you would so satisfy us in the grace of Jesus that we don't have to put on the show. That we can be honest about our blemishes, our sin, our insecurity, our needs, because we know that in Jesus we have everything we need. Lord, free our hearts to live and relate with each other that way. Lord, we pray this morning as we celebrate Memorial Weekend, we thank you for so many veterans who have sacrificed so much for the safety and protection of this country at such great cost. Lord, we think of our missionaries this morning as well for Rich and Sue Forson in Romania. Uh, we pray specifically for them this morning. We thank you for the smooth transition you're giving them um, in the leadership uh, of the church, that that's underway and being well-received, and we pray that you continue to keep your hand on them. We pray, Lord, for Hans and Rachel Sviggum this morning, for Kaya and Thor as they move back to Minnesota this week. Lord, thank you for the time you've given us with them this year as part of this body for the chance to get to know them. Thank you for the medical training Hans received while here in Boston, and we pray that you would use him at the Mayo Clinic, Lord, to bring, uh, to be a beacon of light in your gospel um, to those who are hurting and in need. Lord, we pray for those in need among us. I think of um, the reality that. Because we live in a broken world, because things that don't always go the way they're supposed to, we do find ourselves in need at times, and others among us in need. Lord, may we not be ashamed to make that known to one another. May we really see each other as your children and as a family. Lord, we know that, that would our child find him or herself in need, we would want them to come to us and let us know because we love them. Lord, may we treat one another as family here in this congregation and lift the needs and burdens of one another. We pray, Lord, for for those with health needs. We thank you so much that Wayne is with us this morning and, and feeling so much better for your care and hand of protection on him. We thank you that Jane Hilton's back with us this morning as well, Lord. Thank you for answering the prayers we've been offering and for bringing healing to her. And we pray, Lord, for others who who continue to battle in various ways, especially those battling cancer, God. Would you bring healing to Mary Boy, to Steve Gerber, to Bob French, who will be with us next week, and to Rick Brown. Lord, in all these things, we come as needy and humble servants. Lord, it's not about what the world or what each other thinks of us. Lord, thank you that you are enough. May that shape our lives. May that fuel our prayer. May it fuel our generosity. May it fuel our desire to know you more. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.